Spelljammer confirmed? Question mark. We're going to do a product spotlight for probably the largest RPG product I've ever seen, Crown of the Oathbreakers. And we're going to cover the remaining questions for the March Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A thread, all on today's Lazy D&D talk show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you like this show and you like the work that I do, you can support me directly by going to patreon.com and signing up. There is a link in the show notes below. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, exclusive adventures, previews of upcoming products, previews of future videos, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you very much. Spelljammer confirmed. So April 1st, Friday, Wizards of the Coast posted a tweet. And their tweet was a little space background with a little space hamster flying across. And it said Spelljammer confirmed on it. And the internet collectively lost their minds. While I was watching this unfold, I had a new thought about how Twitter works. And it's made me, it's a model, right? This is a model. All models are false, but some are useful. I forget who said that. Was that Feynman or something like that? Some smart dude said, all models are, 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 are false, but you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So this is my wrong, but maybe useful model. I think Twitter has like a thread connected directly to our lizard brain it bypasses all of our human intellect and all of our human it goes straight to lizard brain right and when you post a tweet or read a tweet it's tugging on that thread that's right on your lizard brain right in the back of your head and it's just jank janking that thing around right and it drives people bananas and it means that like people's reactions to things are not thoughtful reactions people's reactions are almost all visceral. And it feels like this is a lot of the time on Twitter. Certainly not all the time, but it's just some of the time. And so people lost their minds. Some, some people lost their minds because it's April 1st and they're saying Spelljammer. And they were like, hey, we're fans of Spelljammer and you're just jerking us around. Or are you, is this true or is this not? I think it's like a, a double joke. Because I think they are confirming that Spelljammer is coming. Because we've seen a playtest. We've seen, we've seen indicators that say that it would not surprise me. Like, would it surprise me? If, it would surprise me if we don't hear about Spelljammer. That would surprise me. It would not surprise me if we do see it, right? I think because we've seen, like, when they do a playtest for something, it, it, it's a good indication that they're going to do it. And also the playtest that was, was for this was like six months ago. So that means it's pretty, you would think it's relatively close to, to production. So I think they were doing like a double joke. I think the double joke was, we're going to do it on April 1st. And yet it's going to be true. And that's sort of the joke, right? The problem is that's a subtlety that is not going to make it on Twitter. And it did not make it on Twitter. And many, many people replied with, how dare you, sir, or, or dare, sir or ma'am? How dare you play with our emotions like this? To which I say like, Maybe you want to let go a little bit, right? That when a commercial company is in control of something like Star Wars, right? I feel this way about Star Wars, that when a commercial company is in control of an intellectual property that you identify with, it's not just that you like it, it's that it's part of you, right? And Star Wars is part of me. 
it's you know you're you're going to be in a bad state it doesn't matter what they do because you're in a bad state because you're you're giving control of this thing that has emotional power over you to a commercial company that's going to do whatever they want with it and they're going to make good decisions and make bad decisions we've had we've seen that with star wars good decisions and bad decisions right i'm not going to say which ones are good and bad because we all have different points of view i bet my bad decisions good decisions not the same as yours right so but boy, people collectively, the, so many people were so mad to which I'm like, relax, right? Like I, I live and breathe D&D, right? I'm, I am doing stuff with D&D all the time. I love this game. I love playing it. I love running it. I love talking about it. I love writing about it. I love doing all the stuff that I'm doing, right? I am, a lot of my life is wrapped around this hobby, right? These days, right? And has been for a decade, Right. And then even still, it's been part of my childhood since I was 14. So like I am tied pretty closely to this, but I recognize that like if they do stuff with Forgotten Realms or Planescape or Spelljammer or Dark Sun or whatever that, you know, like they're going to do what they do. Right. And I can't control that. They're not asking my vote. So if I'm giving them emotional con control over me, that's I'm the one in a disadvantage. Right. I have a severe disadvantage because they're not. They're not thinking about me, right? If I'm upset, they don't, the company doesn't care, but the other way around does. So like when I think about like, well, what do I care about really? Like when am I, cause I've taught, I have friends and my friends are like, I'm worried they're gonna do X, Y, and Z. And like, I'm a little worried about what they're gonna do with like the next version of D&D when they do this new thing in the next couple of years. I'm concerned. Yeah, I think concern is a safe word that like are what are the things they're going to do? What are they not going to do? And the answer is, I don't know. And we're going to see. But then the other answer is like, well, D&D has survived a lot. So I think we'll be OK. Right. We're, we're lucky. I've talked about this numerous times. We're lucky that it doesn't really matter. If Wizards of the Coast said, we're just going to do movie licenses from now on. We're not going to actually make any games. We're like, OK, well, I've got games that I've been playing for, you know, 30 years. I, I can keep playing. Right. So it's an argument. The one, the one tweet that I read, there was one tweet and I'm not going to point it out, but there was, I'm going to point it out because I'm going to point out what they said, but I'm not going to point it out who it was. That doesn't matter. But like the one tweet where I'm like, I have to leave Twitter. I need to, I need to close the window and go do something else was somebody who said most players actually want Spelljammer back. And I was like, how do you have access to all the players of D&D, &D? right? Like I can't, I try to survey all the time. My surveys are flawed and I got major selection bias and all kinds of problems. How is it that you have this wonderful connection to all the D&D &D players where you can telepathically say, how do you feel about Spelljammer? And 51% say, oh, we want it. Come on. Like I, I almost guarantee I would be shocked if 50% of D&D &D players knew what Spelljammer was. Because part of me when I look at Spelljammer is it's like, I can't tell who's trolling who, right? Like, are the players trolling D&D &D or Wizards by saying we want Spelljammer? And then it's like, eh, we don't really care. One of my favorite, I was talking to a, another producer of our RPG, fine RPG products, and they said that they actually spent a lot of money making a Pathfinder version of something that they had originally made in 5e. They made this adventure, I think it was like an adventure or campaign book, and they made a D and D version, five five E version, and a bunch of Pathfinder people. Are like, how come you're not making a Pathfinder version? So they're like, okay, we'll make one. So they made a Pathfinder version, and then he said, like, we can't, we can't sell them. And he's like, we're at a convention, and a guy walks up to the booth, right, and says, and picks up the five E version of the campaign. And he's like, oh, this is cool. Do you have a Pathfinder version? And he says, yeah, right over here. And it goes, cool, and then walked away. Right. And it was like, I, I wonder if we got a little bit of this that like everyone's saying, oh, I want Spelljammer. And I'm like, do you really? Or are you just like, it's the most bizarre 
not I don't think it's the most bizarre, but it's like the most popular and bizarre of settings. So we're going to say we want it. And now it's become a meme, this Spelljammer confirmed meme. But is it actually popular? And actually, we, we have an opportunity to look at a little bit of data that somebody backed up to, to, to ask this to ask this question. So anyway, I found I found the whole thing interesting, not because it's confirmed or not, but because like it just it kind of goes back to this reinforcement of like where and, and I feel this way sometimes. So like I'm not I'm not mocking the people that feel this way because I feel this way, but I'm questioning myself saying like I need to let go if I find myself getting really bent out of shape about a statement like this i need to like let go because they don't they're not thinking about me at all right like i'm really upset and they're not thinking about me at all so yeah so that's that's what i offer there today we are going to spotlight a a product this is a product that at least in part is done by a a pal of sly flourish rex um Gabor Hegdas, who posts regularly on the Patreon Q&A. I've talked about his questions before. He often shows up here in our stream chat and he sent me things that says, hey, you know, I, I've, I've worked on a thing and we'd love you to take a look. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Sure. And they said, yeah, we'll send you a, we'll send you a preview. So I received a preview copy of this, which is important, important to note. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, preview copy. And then I opened up and I was like, this book is 900 pages. This is a huge <laughs> like product. This is crazy. And that product is Crown of the Oathbreaker. First of all, look at that cover art. But also you can see like, look at that page count. 917 pages, right? Crazy good looking book. So what is this thing? It is a campaign source book. It is a, it's a, it's a campaign source book. I might have the wrong Gabor. Do I have the wrong Gabor? I might have two Gabors, and this might be the other Gabor. If it's the other Gabor, I apologize. I've messed up. So anyway, but it is a crazy book. It was it was kickstarted. It's done by a company called Elderbrain. We're going to go to the Elderbrain website here in a second. And it is a campaign adventure primarily. It's got a great big world. It's got a great big storyline that's going on. It's got a whole bunch of information about the kingdom, the, the kingdom and everything that's going on here. It has... It, very, very well laid out excellent artwork beautiful dark whoops i scrolled a little bit the scrolling is a little weird uh really good artwork but it is enormous and that's not a disadvantage because the interesting thing is as a 917 page pdf you could say like well how much does this cost right and the answer is for the pdf 25 bucks which is extremely reasonable for a book this for a book this big look at that look at the artwork right so it is a it's 5e compatible it is a campaign adventure is it hyperlink that's a good question i don't want to scroll back up again to find out because it's so big it's going to blow up my machine if i try to do that the the adventure background is very shakespearean you know sort of greek tragedy slash shakespearean sort of adventure it's got uh mad kings and creepy creepy sons it's like this this family that gets completely wrecked it gets the oh you want the hyperlink to the actual product or you want the hyperlink we should what's it called what is it called crown of the oath breakers pdf 25 dollars right here let's let's paste that in the chat and you can find the link to this product in the in the show notes in the show notes below so it is, yeah, so the storyline is about a royal family who gets completely wrecked 
by three hags in all sorts of weird and creepy ways. It is a creepy adventure, I will warn you. And they give they give a, a pretty firm trigger warning thing in here that's like, there's a lot of creepy stuff in this adventure. So keep in mind that there is a lot of creepy stuff in this adventure. Weird relationships and and, and stuff, you know. You know, this 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 is the line that kind of grabbed me. <laughs> Queen Alyssa adored her son Kras Krasnar, and her son also felt a mad, somewhat unhealthy love towards his mother. That's where you're like, yeah, right? And then but yeah, so right. So it feels very Macbeth, right? Very much like Macbeth, right? And so, yeah, I think probably that it would not surprise me if Macbeth was the primary, the primary notion behind this. But you essentially have a family getting wrecked by three hags. At one point, each of the three hags pretends to be the, the new wife of the king. And they all three of them have daughters uh, by the king who they pretend are the same person. And there's kind of switching, switching them around. Right. So there's a really interesting like how this family just gets destroyed. But then there's this also like these other angles of like a crazy drow cult of aberration worshipers who managed to get the body of the sun and turn him into this aberrant death knight guy. They sure stack the prestige classes onto this poor knight who, who gets killed, right? So very, very detailed, intricate storyline here that the party, the characters sort of get involved in after it's taken effect. And so they're sort of the, the, the adventurer themselves, the, the adventurers themselves are sort of dissecting what had happened, right? That the story's already occurred. They're not stopping any of these events. These have already occurred. And now they're still dealing with the hags. They're dealing with the drow cult. They're dealing with the, 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 the crazy death knight, aberrant son. They're dealing with the former king, the, the wife, you know, the wife who was turned. So the original wife turns into an Aranese, right? And so she's this vengeful Aranese who like murders the king, you know, in the middle of, in the middle of this event. So yeah, there's, there's, you know, oh yeah. So it is a big campaign adventure book. It's got lots and lots of stuff, obviously 917 pages worth of stuff, right? Lots of stuff about the adventure itself. And it's got cults, right? So I'm, you know, you got cults out, out, damn Aranis. So lots of lots of things going on here, and then of course, yeah, a lot of lot of things about the the, the city and the environment. I mean, nine hundred pages. I couldn't even skim read it. Right? It's got so much going on, and I froze my browser up by jumping halfway down. Really good looking book. Really cool stuff. A good example of like a company who's putting a lot of energy behind a big product that the big meaty product that you could run as a campaign. You could look at it and your and your group could really be behind it. I'd say my only complaint is they have a great big monster compendium in the back. And in my little skim read of the monsters, there's definitely like little designy things. There was one there was one monster, I think it might be the the crazy death knight guy who was like the, I think the description of it, I'm not going to look it up because like, you know, one problem with trying to preview a 900 page document is your browser just freezes. But the, 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 the thing said, like it has three attacks that can be either like it's longsword or a tentacle as part of a bonus action. <laughs> and I was like, part of a bonus action. What is what does that mean? Right. Like, how does that work? And I was I happened to be reading it. I was I was chatting with some other designer friends. And I read that and we all laughed because they're like. What is that, right? So there's definitely, like, I, and I'm not bashing it too hard because, like, monster design is hard. And frankly, mechanic design in 5e is not easy. I don't, I actually don't really recommend it. I don't do a lot of it in my published work. And I don't recommend it because it's so easy to screw up, right? It takes so much work to, to, to get it right. Let's see if I can get down to the, we're going to, 
try to try to jump down. But there are a lot of monsters. I haven't read, you know, again, I haven't read through all of them. Uh, so I don't have uh, uh, I don't have a good thumb on like, did I just happen to pick one that was weird? But when I sort of randomly pick one and I see like a weird mechanic thing, like, you know, oh, and the other thing, and this is a complaint that I have about a lot of books is when they take a stat block and they spread it across multiple pages. Like I get that space is an issue. Look at that, dude. The artwork is really good. So this is, a, this is normal. Like more coral reborn makes two melee attacks with its great mace or one or one with its paralyzing touch. Okay, that's fine. But there was one that had something about being part of a bonus action. And I was like, I don't understand. I don't understand what part of a bonus action means. And it's also was under the actions, uh, the actions territory. So that 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 is a little, you know, that's a little strange. So, you know, monster design is hard and playtesting monster design is hard. They did have playtesters for this. And so, you know, we know that people actually ran through it. The artwork is really great, right? Oh, she looks, that's, that's not nice. Ugh. Challenge rating eight for a queen, right? Here's an aberrant drow with a bunch of eyes. He's got a lot of eyes going on, right? So I, 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 I don't know. I guess they have a physical book, but what is that going to be like? Like I'm looking at, you know, that we're, we're comparing it to Tolos because I thought Tolos was the biggest source book I've ever seen. And it's only 600 pages. This one's 900, 50% bigger, right? So I think the story looks really cool. Oh, the maps are also great. It comes with a full map pack. It comes with like everything you would need to be able to run this. I'd probably recommend the PDF, right? I don't know what it's going to be like to try to ship you know, to try to ship a book like this. And I don't know that I would trust it because it's really hard. I can speak from experience. It's really hard to get books, right? So, but the PDF for $25 for all the stuff that you get in this giant PDF thing is really cool. Yes, and the first chapter is available as a free download. So you can check that out. Now, one of the other interesting things though, so it's a great book. I recommend it, $25. You know, I mean, that's that's not cheap, right? That's not cheap for a PDF. It is cheap for a 900 page PDF, right? So if you get this and you open it up and it and you like it, you know, you read it and you check it out, I think it's I think it's definitely worth it. So I definitely I recommend it. I would have bought this, right? They gave they did give me a preview copy, something something to keep in mind, but I would have um, had I known about this and had I seen it, I would definitely have bought a copy myself. So one of the things that they did here that I thought was interesting is they said the book is based on feedback of over 2000 D&D fans. This goes back to our Spelljammer little question. They had run a survey. The Elder Brain folks had run a survey. I did not know about this survey, but they got 2000 responses to this survey. And you can, and they, thank you so much, Elder Brain. They shared the results. They shared the results. Thank you so much. This is the kind of thing I wish Wizards of the Coast would do. Like, tell us the interesting parts, right? Like, I get that, like, you, you know, there's parts of it that you want to keep in mind. But, like, you're taking so much time from so many people. Let them see the results, right? We wanted to see the results. And they did. The, the folks at Elderbrain did, right? So they, it's a huge survey. Like, check this out. Like, whoa, whoa questions right lots of questions i haven't even been through the whole thing i saved it because i was like if they ever take it down i want this data so i saved it as a pdf and stuck it in my drive so now i've got my own copy and what's interesting is they do a lot of demographic information which helps us understand their sample right like we know that all surveys like this are flawed by selection bias that like who did you ask right and so even where is that survey let me let me paste a link so uh i'll, I'll paste it right in here and I will paste the actual result and I will link to this directly in the show notes, the, the show notes below. Right. But what's interesting is because anytime you do a, a survey like this, you, you hit like a selection bias problem, which means you this is not a pure like the 2,282 responses are not a pure representation of the total D&D community. 
because you can't reach the DD community. In instead, you've reached particular pockets and you don't know which pockets and you don't know how well those pockets represent the whole. But, you know, I believe like, look, it's better than guessing, right? It's better than nothing. And you at least reach the people that you were able to reach, right? Which is how I look at my polls and stuff like that. But they actually did a lot of demographics to say, where are people from? So you can see like, is this like, look at it. 15% of the responses came from Australia. That seems like a high amount you know, as a percentage, is that, is that, is are our 15% of all D and D players from Australia? I mean, that seems high compared to everywhere else compared to the rest of, of, of your like, Oh no, I'm sorry. That's Europe. And they say yeah, color codes, man. So this I do buy, right? 15.7% is Europe and the UK, right? And then Australia is a slice small enough that it doesn't even show up in this list. Don't get me started about pie charts, man. I hate pie charts. Pie charts are the worst. You want go, go read up on your Edward Tufty and stop using pie charts. Just give us a table of answers. So it's not a misprint for Australia. It's that there are two different greens. There's a dark green and a light green and the light green is so small. Uh, it doesn't show up. So that makes more sense. But age, how old are you? 12 to 24, 52%, 12 to 24. That's a, that's a low demographic, 25 to 37, right? 38 to 50. I'm in this little 12% slice right here that's interesting right what gender do you identify at right and i think yeah 5.5 non-binary right male 81 81 11 female and uh, a little slice of two percent don't want to say how many years you've been playing DD? really interesting right one to four years is 54 percent have only been playing one four years and this gets into like do people really care about Spelljammer when 54% have only been playing four years? Four years, one to four years. They've only ever played fifth edition, maybe, right? That's crazy, that's really. Uh, DMs, 60%, so a lot of players, right? Look at the number of players, 58% of players plus 24%, you know, that's a huge uh, number of players. So really, they, they managed to tap into the player group quite a bit. How often do you use miniatures? Uh, you have to look at the original questions, but it's essentially like always, sometimes, never right? Off, always, often, sometimes, never, right? And that's the one. What modules do you prefer? Well, formats, right? PDF. I write my own PDF print 48%, right? And then you could select multiple responses to this, I'm pretty sure, right? So that was pretty interesting. Which VTT? This is another one where I was like, huh? Because I was like, D20 Pro is 30. Well, I've never even heard of D20 Pro and it's 36%. No, it's because that 38.6% is I don't use a VTT, right? I use Theater of the Mind. So 51% use Roll20, according to this survey, right? 51% use this survey and then 39% don't use a VTT software. That is fascinating, right? How long do you prefer to play an adventure? Uh, so there's so much stuff. I'm, I might, we might need to do a deeper dive into this, but I wanted to pick on one because uh, it directly relates to this Spelljammer thing. And one of the questions here was which world, here it is. Which official D&D setting do you enjoy playing the most? And you could choose three. Forgotten Realms, 58%, right? Homebrew, 61%. This, I, I back this up with my own surveys where I found out that, or the, the response to my surveys were that more than half of DMs run their own home, home campaigns. They're not running published campaign worlds. I thought that was fascinating, right? But look how big Forgotten Realms is. Eberron, 21, 27. Planescape, 9.3. So it's not nothing. It's equivalent to Dark Sun, roughly, right? To Dark Sun, Dragonlance, Greyhawk. You know, but Spelljammer, I'm sorry, Planescape 9.3, Spelljammer 7.4, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much into the numbers here, except to say, like, you can see that, like, the top three are Homebrew, Forgotten Realms, and Eberron, and then you have Ravenloft and Wildmount, right? And that's, that, that Wildmount's an interesting one, that, like, that, like, it's almost twice as popular as these other ones. 
So like you can see like, okay, it seemed to make sense for them to do call from the nether deep, right? It really does. Like the data backs it up. They didn't have any of the Magic the Gathering settings on here. So I don't know how those played out. But I, you know, so that idea, I go back to like the most, most fans want Spelljammer is not backed up by the data. And that also doesn't make any sense. Really fascinating poll. It's stuff, is Ravnica in here? Somebody said Ravnica's in here. I can't read. Yeah, Ravnica and Innistrad. Innistrad. The, the funny thing is there is no campaign setting for Innistrad. There's that little like free preview PDF. 12%, you know. So really interesting data and and something to consider. And I love that the company did a big poll to use the data to help build the kind of products they build, right? Like build products people want. So it works out. Hey, my mom is here. Hey, mom. My mom says she loves charts. You should dissect all this because holy cow, this poll is really big. Anyway, really interesting poll. Side benefit of, of uh, a company that made a 900-page campaign adventure called Crown of the Oathbreakers. Again, I recommend it. Look at that, dude. He, he knows something. He's, he knows things about you. He doesn't approve. He knows things about what you've done, and he doesn't approve, right? That is his non-approval. So really interesting stuff. Really, really great. All right. We are going to, that was uh, Crown of the Oathbreakers. Patreon questions, the remainder of the Patreon questions for March. On Tuesday or Wednesday, I think Wednesday, I will post the new April Patreon Q&A thread. So every month, I post a new thread on the Sly Flourish Patreon, offering up the Patreon Q&A, saying, hey, any questions you want to talk about, we can talk about. I will answer them directly on Patreon all the time, or sometimes I will talk about them here on the show. Some in rare occurrences, I'll take one of them that I think is a really interesting question and do a whole video about it or a whole article or something like that. I've done that before. So if you're interested in asking questions, go there. Uh, a couple, we, we have some new ground rules, right? That I'm offering up. It worked well last month. It helped me considerably. So thank you for everybody that supported the ground rules. One of those ground rules is check the database. So there is a talk show database available to Patreon, to patrons. Go to that database, type in like a keyword from your, from your question and see if I've talked about it before. Many times I have. And if, if you don't, you post a question, I will just say, yeah, I answered that. And here's the link. But check the database to see if I've already answered the question. Because we're getting to the point where I've done hundreds of these, 500, I think. I don't know how many Patreon questions. Lots of Patreon questions. We can find out. Let's find out. It's data time. Let's get, we can guess or we can actually look. Updated 1 April. This database, if you have not seen it before, is the talk show database. It is only available to patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get this and you can do a search. And what we can do is we'll do topic category. Whoops. And we are going to select Patreon questions. And how many are there? 251 Patreon questions that have been answered on this show. So all kinds of things have already been answered. Whatever your question is, you can type it in the search. You can see if I've already answered that question. And that saves us all a little bit of time. The other thing is I ask for only one question per patron. So don't ask me three or four questions in three or four different messages. Just try to focus. Think about one question that you really want answered. Focus on that question. Third is try to keep it brief. I love your stories. I love to hear about stuff that's going on. But I'm also reading a lot of these. And so if you're able to kind of focus down on the question that you have, that helps me considerably. Thank you very much to the patrons, by the way. So let's, uh, let's, let's take a look at the questions. First question, Bill K. What is the best way to level up BBEG? BBEG stands for big, bad, evil guy. Well, or as I like to refer to them, villains, right? What's the best way to level up a big, bad, evil guy over the course of a campaign? Are the monster dials enough or is there some other method? I have a start, I have, I have a start to a campaign where the PCs encounter the BBEG in a weakened state. BBEG is still powerful enough to defeat the PCs, but isn't at his full strength. 
Assuming the PCs survive the encounter, they will encounter the BBG later on. Uh, I want the BBG to strengthen and stage. As the PCs reach certain points in the story, the BBG will achieve his own benchmarks as well. Is it possible that the BBG and the PCs will encounter each other over multiple times and that the power gap between the two will be narrow? I have considered using minions for this. I'm not, yeah, so this part lost me a little bit. I have considered using minions for this, but I'm not certain that this is what I want to do as it could get messy. Read large battle later on. So... Large battles, I got you covered. Horde rules, right? I have a very simple set of horde rules. It's now in the Lazy DM's Companion. It's also available on Sly Flourish, but it essentially says when you're running a huge horde of monsters, do two things. One, assume one quarter of them succeed on saving throws and attack rolls. You can change that number up and down either by rolling some dice or by determining the situation and saying like actually against this person, it would be less or it'd be more. Advantage, for example, would be half instead of a quarter. The other thing is pool the monster hit points together. So instead, every pool the damage done to the monster horde. So if you have a bunch of skeletons that are attacking, let's say you have 50 skeletons, instead of tracking hit points for all 50 skeletons, you say every time the horde of skeletons takes 10 damage, I throw out a skeleton, right? Every time. If it takes 30 damage, I take out three skeletons. If a fireball hits them, that's a different state. Fireball, all of the skeletons that are inside that fireball are probably dead, right? So, so, but getting to your point about leveling up bad guys. So I'll give you the, the I'll give you the answer to your question, but I'm going to die. I'm going to, I'm going to dive into this question a little bit and twist around. So for, yes, you can do this. And an easy way to do it is to reskin monsters. I don't know who your BBEG is or what kind they are, but if you can, ideally, if you can find some monster stat blocks that like, let's pretend it was a dragon. You can have your young dragon, your adult dragon, and your ancient dragon. You can take all three of those. You could reskin your young adult and ancient dragons into all kinds of monsters, right? I reskinned them like a ninja once. I created like a, a ninja, an assassin, a cyber assassin that I took a black dragon stat block and reskinned, right? So you can reskin lots of different ways, but you could take like, if it's a melee type, you can take your orc to your ogre, to your giant, you know, to your hill giants and all the way up the giant chain if you want. You can, so, so take a look at stat blocks that kind of fit them and see if there are stat blocks of different challenge ratings that fit that support. So I, I would probably do that. I don't think I would build out stat blocks. But I also, the, there's a subtle under, under, tone of this of this question that I, I I worry about a little bit. And that's that are you trying too hard to make sure that things happen a certain way? Do you have expectations that the players are going to face this bad guy in combat multiple ways? And I'll warn you that players when a when a when a bad guy escapes, players get pissed off a lot of times, right? They do not like to see monsters escape or get away or, you know, automatically you know, end the battle. So a better, a better way, in my opinion, is don't let the character, make sure that the bad guy stays out of the range of the characters so they don't fight. Like they, maybe they can fight his minions or his bosses. He could have sub bosses that get killed. But to try to have the same fight multiple times seems like it's one of these ideas that seems like a good idea until it hits the table. And what you what you may find is that your players are going to get frustrated. Oh, this guy's getting away again. Right. It doesn't play like a movie. Right. It doesn't play like a movie. It doesn't it doesn't play like a book. Yeah. And so Walt APR here in chat has a better alternative. Use heralds who speaks for the bad guy. Get them in front of the characters and let them kill the heralds. Right. Heralds are meant to die. Right. They're meant and, and they could be t- heralds can be hard. Right. You could have heralds that are really, really tough. 
So use them instead of having you fight the big, bad, evil guy multiple times. So Bill, I hope that answers your question. Josh says, what are your favorite classic D&D encounters you think every player should experience? I have a friend of mine who is new to D&D. Never, always was like on the fringe and periphery of D&D, but never really played. And the other day he almost got killed by a gelatinous cube. And we were like, welcome to D&D, right? Like that, he's like, wow, right? And like, I almost got killed by a gelatinous cube. So so that's a good, you hit me at a right time to ask this question because like, what are the classic encounters, right? And I would say, so I thought some up after this question. Gelatinous Cube is one. Mind Flayer is another. A Beholder is another. An Adult or Ancient Dragon is another. And a Lich. There are certainly lots of other ones. Fighting Giants and Fighting Demons and Fighting All Kinds. Cults and Vampires. You know, Scipio 202 says Cults and Vampires. But I look at it like, what are the classic D&D ones? What, and that, like, you wouldn't really face in, in other RPGs. These to me are those like, you know, and of course, it's really interesting that like at least two of these owlbears are one. You could put owlbear on the list. But these to me are the five that I think like these really define D&D to me, right? When you face these and they are kind of in range of difficulty, right? That like your gelatinous cube is a good low tier one. Really dangerous, by the way. You get sucked into one. You're a bad, bad way. Mind flares are definitely scary. Beholders are really you know that's when you've really crossed the line from like low power to high power monsters and then adults and ancient dragons are really tough and of course to me i love liches as a mastermind lich is probably mine that i'd add on there that's like is that really a classic one like i don't know kind of so those are the those to me are the classic the classic ones Jordan, uh, fellow YouTube, fellow D&D YouTube personality, Jordan comes here. Uh, the PH is silent. Uh, asks, how would you run villains or NPCs lying without insight checks? My players expect insight checks to see if someone is lying. I've been wanting to remove them to force players to make their own judgment. It's an interesting, it's a good question. It's a tough one. And, and it's one of these where like the way that D&D operates doesn't really fit mysteries particularly well. But there's a few things you could do. And one is, what do they notice with an insight check? Even if they roll a really good insight check, it might not tell them someone is lying. It might just give them information, like they're acting nervous or they have a weird tick or there's some there's something that they're hiding, right? There's something that they're not saying, right? And of course, if they roll like a 24, you'd think like, well, they should know everything, right? They should be, be like Sherlock Holmes. They see the one tiny little drop of sweat and they immediately know like, oh, this is true, right? So... I think that what they learn with an insight check is one. The other one, so so yeah, the idea that insight is not a lie detector. Insight just tells you about what the character sees, right? And they might the the resolution of what they see is how good that check is. But it's not going to determine. It might it might you know it might give them enough information they can immediately discern a lie. So that's one thing. The other one, if you if you have a tricky situation where you don't want them to know, is this idea of the DM rolling on the player's behalf. So instead of them rolling an insight check and then seeing the roll and be like, why well, roll the 26? Instead, you can say, what is your insight bonus? And they'll say it's plus six. And you roll and you see what the roll is and you give them information based on the secret roll. The advantage of that is the player doesn't know what the roll was. So they don't know how good the information is they're getting is, right? They pick some stuff up. But like, it's one of these where like, does the character know that they did particularly well with their insight or not? Not really, right? Instead, they, you know, so this is one of those where you can, you can roll behind the scenes. The other one is don't have the liar in front of the characters, right? What if the characters are dissecting a situation, 
But the people they're talking to believe what they're saying. It's that they were lied to and they failed their insight checks, right? So I had this happen when I had a secret cult in my Ghost of Saltmarsh game. You have the Scarlet Brotherhood, right? And Scarlet Brotherhood is a secret organization that's taking place inside Ghost of Saltmarsh. Spoilers for Ghost of Saltmarsh, by the way. Too late, but yeah. And I remember I had one of the members, one of the leaders was in a scene. And I offhand, I just wanted to mention that they were there. And I mentioned they were there. And my, my wife's characters, my wife is like, why is this guy here? Why, you know? And immediately they were like looking at him. Like, that's odd, right? And it was like, and, and I kind of screwed up because I mentioned him, right? But it's like, how do you not mention the, the people? Then they was like, why is, why is the butler here, right? And I had to come up with something. But I, what I, in world, I said that he showed up and then he looked and he saw that the characters were looking at him suspiciously and realized I can't ever be in their sight again. I'm going to have to step away and stay out of their way. Because it's one of these, like, you want to foreshadow, you want to pull like, a, like, a, like an Agatha Christie style, oh, the, the the answer was in front of your face all along. But boy, players are smarter than I am, right? So they're going to pick up on it and they'll be like, oh, that's that guy, right? So instead, don't have the person that you really need to be critical to your story. Don't put him in front of the characters. Same way with the BBG, right? Don't put a bad guy in front of your characters unless you expect him to walk up and stab him and kill him and know that that's fine with this story, right? Jordan, I hope that answers your questions. A couple couple different approaches there. Rangdo, who I believe is here. Rangdo Varg is here right here. He can answer his question. One of the most iconic scenes in fantasy cinema is the skeleton fight in Ray Harryhausen's Jason and the Argonauts. But in 5e, skeletons are only CR one quarter. How would you Harryhausen D&D skeletons to make them creepy and dangerous even to heroes? So the interesting thing is, like, how, 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 I, I, so for homework, I watched the scene from Jason the Argonaut. You can find it on YouTube. I watched the Jason the Argonaut scene with the skeletons. It's very cool. Skeletons coming out of the ground and getting a big fight. Those look like pretty straightforward skeletons. There were only about six of them. So the answer is, like, how heroic are the heroes? If the heroes are level one, six skeletons is scary right so so cr one quarter skeletons aren't i think i think that the ones that i saw jason the argonauts looked like cr one quarter skeletons it's just the fact that their skeletons is scary right now but here's the trick right somebody brought up hey cobalt press has some yeah they have one called like bone breaker skeletons i think or something like that shard breaker skeletons that are really like higher skeletons ones but i've got a better tool for you every monster can be a skeleton Right. And in fact, this is core. This is in, uh, you, this is not weird Mike Shea stuff. If we go to DD Beyond, right? And we go to, to Game Rules, Sources, Source Books, Dungeon Master's Guide. In the Dungeon Master's Guide, there is a, I think, creating, is it under creating a monster? Let's go to the workshop. Yeah. So here in the Dungeon Master's Workshop chapter of the uh, DD book, we have, they have a whole bunch of like how to turn monsters and other ones. Like what does it take to turn one into another Dragonborn versions? And it's easy to skip this until you go and there's two pretty close to the bottom, skeletons and zombies, right? You can essentially take any NPC or really any stat block and turn it into a skeleton with some very simple additions. I'm not even sure I'd worry about these attribute things. You might, but you don't really have to worry about them, right? And vulnerable to bludgeoning damage, immune to poison damage and exhaustion, can't be poisoned, can't speak. Very simple stuff you could keep in your head to turn any monster into a skeleton. And if you look at the frost giant skeletons in rhyme of the frost Maiden, they are scary as hell skeleton thug scary skeleton veterans skeleton champions right you can take any skeletal mages skeletal archmage i guess that's like a lich right but you can take any monster and turn it into a skeleton 
any monster can be turned into a skeleton. And, and really, all you really need to do is say, it's a skeleton. And you're done. You don't really, like this stuff is nice, but you don't really need it, right? Most of the time, this stuff doesn't really come into play. And the vulnerability, like you can make vulnerable skeletons if you want, but you gotta say, eh, these guys aren't really that vulnerable, right? Skeletal skeletons. I, I guess you could do that. Zombie skeleton. So almost any monster you can turn into a skeleton by adding this template or basically just by calling it a skeleton. So if you want hard skeletons, that's a way to do it. And boy, like a veteran skeleton, they, they're, they're cool, right? Three attacks around, they're fighting with short swords and stuff like that, really cool. The other little trick I'll give you, this is a, something from that we put in Lazy DM's Companion, is to me, a hard skeleton, I was watching Lord of the Rings and we were talking about what are the, the ring wraiths, right? Well, they call them wraiths, but, you're like, but they're physical. I guess they're kind of like wraiths, but they're attacking with swords and stuff. They're more like a white, right? W-I-G-H-T right and a white is essentially like a scarier skeleton right except the stat block is not particularly scary but i have a very simple fix which is when they make their longsword attacks put the life drain on top of the longsword attack give them that they add add more necrotic damage you can add five you could do 1d6 plus two necrotic damage if you want you could also turn it into 2d6 and make it seven make them do the con save and make them lose their hit points if they do it whites are much scarier if they're inflicting you know 13 points of damage per hit and draining your life with the necrotic damage. So I would mix these two. Instead of having a life drain attack and separate from a longsword attack, I'd stack the two together. But the lazy DM trick of add necrotic damage is a really easy one to do, right? Add some necrotic damage. And I like to do it in pairs of sixes. So I like to do seven, 2d6 for small ones, 14, 46, you know, 21, 66, right? For like vampire life drains and stuff like that. Add necrotic damage. Really simple, really simple, really simple tool. So those are good ways to make scary skeletons. Rango, I hope that answered your question. Bram says, my players have defeated the penultimate villain reaching 19th level from 17 through experience and are now taking on the final problem, the city of brass. About half of this gargantuan of that first of all, congratulations on getting the 19th level in the campaign. That is a big deal. That's a big deal. You should be proud of yourself for getting that far. Gargantuan Freddy city plunked down in the middle of the material plane and my players want to put it back. They just don't know how, and they have no real life reference on how to deal with this. I don't have any life reference for how to send back the city of brass into the real world either. I don't know that many of us do. There might be some, but not me. They don't know how, and they have no life experience. I'm trying to give them more ways to deal with the problem. Start with the slave rebellion, break the anchor that keeps the, in the material plane, turn the Grand Sultan's power, uh, powerful allies against them, but they haven't gotten it yet. Of course, I didn't spell it out yet. The problem is they all, all they think about is the thousands of soldiers the city has and how the town has very little to fight with. They also know the Grand Sultan can cast Wish three times a day. I mean, he should, right? And feel, and feel discouraged. I want them to feel powerful against immense opposition. How would you inspire my players or give them the tools they need to succeed? I think this falls, I think this falls into the category of, oh, hey, Salicious, that's Bram. Yeah, congratulations, Salicious, on, on getting this far in a campaign. That is a, that is a great big deal. I, I, I'm, I think this falls into a couple of categories and I'm probably oversimplifying things, right? So keep that in mind. Like you, you, you know your players and you know your campaign better than I do. But like a lot of times players just don't see the things that their characters would see, right? They, they're only getting, players are only understanding, this is my like another model, that a loose model that is inaccurate but maybe useful. Players are only understanding about half of what you're describing, right? So they might not really understand the situation. They might look at it and be like, I don't know, it's impenetrable. I don't know how we deal with this. We got a Sultan who cast Wish. He's got a bunch of powerful allies. We have thousands of soldiers in basic city. What are we supposed to do? And this is where like a helpful NPC could come in, right? Helpful NPCs can offer options. And you might say like, there's a few different ways to deal with it. And you 
might say like you're going to have to break through some pieces of this like how are you going to get past the wish the fact that the king cast wish like how do you get him to ex- expend his wishes or get to him before he can use it how do you counteract is there an artifact that you can go recover that can suck wishes up right <laughs> like you you know when they cast wish it, it it eats it right like this is that like clash of the titans style oh you want to defeat a gorgon or you, you want to feed a titan you're going to need to kill another titan right like you know, defeating Medusa is worse than dealing with the Kraken. But if you're game, you can go do that. So what artifact do they have to recover that's even worse or more dangerous than the Sultan's wishes, but can absorb the Sultan's wishes? Like, but, you know, quests, right? So like NPCs, they have a little exclamation marks above their head. You walk over, you say, what am I supposed to do? And they say, hey, look, in order for us to break through these thousands of soldiers, we're going to need to sow dissension. We need these three tasks done to sow dissension right or did Harryhausen do Clash of the Titans oh that's really cool so you know so what are the what are the quite you know like think about like break it up into pieces and think about like what are the different pieces that the that the that can be brought to the player so they go oh okay we are going to have to do this like and and they could have options like maybe there's somebody else who clearly wants this to happen right who's you know who's able to kind of break this big problem into its component parts and say we can do these parts and maybe you don't have you only need to do a couple of these like maybe there's different ways to get through the thousand soldiers, right? You know, maybe there's more ways to get through the thousand soldiers. Maybe it's so dissension in the ranks, or maybe it's like pull them off to some other battle or do something, right? And there could be different options, but group those into a big quest, put the quest in front of the players, players choose the quest. And then you can always say, and if you have other ideas, we're all ears, right? Like they might have other approaches and maybe giving them two will have them come up with a third that they like better. So... I think breaking the problem into its component, because it is a big problem and they don't know how to do with it. But the reality is like, they're not there. They don't see it. They don't know all these things. So my thought that that's my thought on it. Right. And you can tell me if that, if that, if that thought is useful, but I, I think I would try to offer a few different approaches, put those approaches in front, but, but make them concrete things that like, say you can go do this, like get this artifact in order to eat up the wishes. I kind of like that one. That one's kind of fun. Like what's the, what's the, who, you know, is there another, if you have a Sultan who has wishes, wh- who is their bigger enemy? And then is that riskier, right? I'm kind of doing this in my Numenera game. Alex H says, in your opinion, what makes a great cult and makes great cultist NPCs? I came up with four things. I know we like this question because it's funny because I like cults so much. Creepy theology. What's the weird stuff that they worship, right? Is one. Cool garb. What kind of interesting outfits do they have? What weird rituals do they perform? And what, do they have any neat body modifications that they do, right? Like, like for that. I actually have a cult generator in the Lazy DM's Companion, as, as I'm sure that surprises no one. Let's go find it. In the Lazy DM's Companion, cult generators. I got a villain generator, NPC generator, villain, treasure, point crawls. I can't find it in my own book. I know they're like around the God generator. There we are, cult generator. Page 45. What's their origin? Like, what are they like? You know, and you can have multiple types. Who do they worship, right? You could roll on this. You could roll twice, like water, diseased water. You know, never, never worry about rolling twice on the table to get two different things and play them together. What's some of their appearance? They have long claws. They have an amulet of an eye. You know, do they have a missing eye? Do they wear blindfolds all the time? Where do they reside? What weird rituals do they have? Insect stinging. They sting themselves with insects. I got that right out of the movie Mandy. And who protects them, right? What, 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 who hides them? So if you want like the cult generator as part of the Lazy DMs Companion, you can find the link to buy the Lazy DMs Companion in the links below. That has, thank you for letting me advertise the companion. 
but those kind of alex those are the things that i think make cool make cool cults Zeke says, I'm currently running a group through the recommended Ruins of the Grendel Root five adventure sequence. First of all, thank you so much for running Ruins of the Grendel Root. It always pleases me to know people are enjoying that book. It's one, of, it's, it's, it's one of my faves. And everyone, including myself, is really enjoying it. Awesome. Glad. I'm very glad. Looking past fifth level, I was considering modifying things so that Monty Cook Games is where the machine's weight module is somehow related to the Grendel Root spires. Perhaps it is the origin of it and allowing the, the PCs to dig deeper into the mountain to discover the adventure location, thus beginning that module. I realize you have already provided some ideas for level six plus adventures, but as a lazy DM, it would be easier to run, modify an already made adventure, especially one that you had positive thoughts on a previous talk show. Do you think that would work well? Yes, I think that would be an awesome approach. And I think that the Grendel was originally, I think it is written to allow for this kind of idea. You get to decide what the Grendel route is, right? I, I have one in the book. I have a Grendel route idea in the book that is sort of this essentially an an aberrant creature that's down deep in the mountain and there's like a giant eye right but the reality is i wanted it that the grunter could be anything and you get to decide what it is is it crazy shell demon is it some weird plant growth thing and whatever you want it to be but is it a weird alien ship absolutely right and i think you could actually Take the final adventure in Grendel Root, which has you going down to the, the temple on, that sits atop the Grendel Root, and turn that into like the first entry points of where the machines wait. I think that would work perfectly. I think that I think that those two adventures are are that's a match made in heaven. So yes, I would I I you don't need my permission, right? You own the book, you can do what you want with it. You own both these books, you can do what either. But as the guy who wrote it, I can tell you, I think that is an awesome approach. I would, I would be all over that. I would be all over that. That would be, that'd be a really fun way to, to do it. Alp says, could you explain these? Oh boy, this is a big one, right? Oh, I remember this one. Could you explain these two ideas, how these two ideas interact, please? Building situations versus encounters and the lazy DM step three outline potential scenes. This is an outstanding question. This is a deep, a deep diving question. And I, I so I recommend there's two YouTube videos that talk about each of these things independently that are probably worth watching. One is I talk about the, 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 the building situations. Or I talk about the step three, outline potential scenes, how we do it, why we do it. And then also I have a video on the link to these in the notes below. Also about building situations instead of building scenes. So the argument is like, are these two opposed, right? Do we, do we have, did I offer two pieces of advice that are opposed to one another? I don't think so. And it's, it goes with, you know, we hang on to all this stuff with a loose grip, right? All the things that I ever talk about, if you decide that these are right for you and you should make that choice, right? I mean, you should choose whether that's true or not. Not that you should choose that it is true. You decide, right? It's your game. But none of these are like hard, fast, always true, right? These are like, these are ideas. See, what's, what is a secret and clue? It's a thing that is useful to you, right? Like you get to decide. I have my own definitions that I describe, but like you're allowed to modify these, right? Whatever fits your game is whatever matters most. And when I look at, step three outlining potential scenes that step that that was actually the last step i added to the process because i was like do we really need it and what i realized is so many people do it and i do it that it's probably useful but it's only useful to just help you feel good about what you've got the scenes are just to give you an idea of what's the boundaries of the session you're about to run right and some of those scenes can be situations so the answer is they are not counteractive a scene can be a situation one of the scenes you list out could be you know, that they are going to go on the heist, 
right? And the heist is a situation. Now you might build out and say, well, what is the situation here? And spell out the pieces of the situation. What's the location? What's the goal? Who are the inhabitants? What complications might show up, right? You can sort of break down like what the situation is. And I talk about this in the return, right? Return, the idea of situation-based D&D is not lost. It's not a new occurrence. This is something I talked about in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. So both of them are in this one book, right? And the you know the idea of like when you can build situations instead of scenes i think it works better because it adds flexibility into the game it lets the game evolve as it uh, happens at the table where if you're saying like scene one scene two scene three scene four and if they're like well what if they skip scene two right what happens so the outlining potential scene scene is a wide definition and it can include situations and situations can be scenes so how those two interact i think I'm, I'm hoping that, that I'm making that clear, that the, you can still build a situation and then you plug that situation in as one of your scenes. But the, scene, the scenes themselves is not a hard list. It is just you getting your hands around the bounds of the game you're going to run. And, and they're short, right? It's really just like, hey, and, and recall that in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master says, which scenes might occur? That might is not accidental. It means those scenes might not occur. It means other things may happen. It means you might go off in a different direction. But boy, I know this, and I know a lot of us know this, that if we sit down and we have nothing, we feel like, oh my God, what, what's going to happen? But if we just say like, well, if everything, assuming nothing major changes, these are the scenes that are likely to occur. And I have this idea of these scenes and I can give a rough idea about how long they're going to take. And then I know if I have enough material to run my game. So that's what that list of scenes are. They're not, it's not a hard rule and it's not, it's not encounters, right? Like I get, I get kind of my head tied up around the concept of an encounter, because I always think of a combat encounter, but they're not. Like D&D's, uh, in, in D&D parlance, an encounter is a scene. I just think the word scene works better for me, right? But, uh, no, you know, that's just me. So if you get too wired around an encounter, that then they're going to go to talk to the king and they're going to have this interaction with the king and then the king's going to give them this thing. And then they're going to get jumped on the side of the road by bandits. And then they're going to go to the castle and they're going to talk to the guards at the front of the, the evil castle, right? So... When you, when you lay it out too much and you put too much in those scenes and then they, they go awry, well, now you're like, oh, what do I do, right? Instead, really, really loose, you know, really loose stuff, they can do it. Oh, somebody just told me I didn't change the title of my thing. Oh, man, I didn't. Well, hey, these are tips. At least it's not too, not too, oops. Forgot to change the title, have to start again. Oh, we'll do the whole show again. So, Alp, I hope that answers your questions. Really good question. And I would recommend watching those two videos, one about situations, one about scenes, but you can also read about them in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. And then the main key is that a scene can be a situation and vice versa, right? Thank you. So, so that is awesome. I think we are at exactly 10 o'clock and we have covered all of the March Q&As. To the patrons of Slight Flourish, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for asking these outstanding questions. We covered a whole bunch of questions. How many questions did we cover, did we cover today? Let's find out. Or how many did we cover total? Turn into numbered list. 37 questions we covered over the past month. It feels like more than that. Interesting. Good number of questions that we covered over the last month. And on uh, Wednesday, we will start with a new set of questions uh, for the Q&A. So I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today for the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter, supporting me directly on Patreon, subscribing to my videos here on YouTube, or picking up any of my books. Links to all of these things are in the show notes below. Please check out the links in the show notes below. There's lots of, there's always lots of good stuff there. I do a lot of work to make sure that those, that those show notes are really 
really useful. So uh, check them out. You can get a lot of value, uh, more value out of these videos by checking out the show notes below. Thanks to everybody for hanging out today. Have a great day. Get out there and play some D&D. &D.